I am surveying um, museums and galleries right now, what, what images they post and what are the, like, the most prominent things throughout them and sort of taking note of the composition uh, and the color and uh, what sort of, what things are they posting? What imagery or images are they posting? It's sort of like I'm mimicking a lot of that and then sort of throwing it together in this fake screenshot as a survey of what contemporary art galleries are posting online and what is like quote unquote considered art right now. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 199th episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Tannen Reckling, who spoke with us from Eugene, Oregon, where he's just started an MFA program at the University of Oregon. We talk a bit about the influence of art seen on the internet, how that influences work, disenchantment with traditional modes of art and academia, and how his studio practice has been informed by growing up as a queer youth in rural Nebraska. I'd also like to note that Tannen's work was selected by Bill Conger as part of Studio Break's 2017 student competition. Please note that our 2018 professional competition is now open. This year's juror Brian Frink will be selecting three artists to appear on Studio Break in a future episode, as well as one artist for a solo exhibition at Raka Gallery up in Mankato, Minnesota. If you'd like to find out more information, please visit studiobreak.com. You'll see right on the left sidebar there is a professional artist competition page for more information. If you're catching Studio Break for the very first time, I do want to encourage you to head over to studiobreak.com. We have a wealthy archive of interviews with artists. Again, this is episode 199. Each of our posts have images of the artist's work, as well as links to their websites. And of course, you can listen right there with the default player, or just hit that iTunes hyperlink and subscribe to the podcast so you've always got something to listen to in the studio. Studio Break can be found on social media, so be sure and like our Facebook page. You can also find us on Twitter at Studio Break and on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. And with those announcements out of the way, here's the interview with Tannen coming up. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Tannen Reckling. How are you this afternoon? Doing, I'm doing awesome. It's 12, 12 p.m. here. Those are my favorite numbers, and I'm so excited to talk to you. Awesome, awesome. And just remind us, too, you're out in Oregon. Where are you at in Oregon? I am in Eugene, Oregon right now in my brand-new MFA studio at the University of Oregon. Oh, wow, cool, cool. And, of course, again, we'll, we'll talk all about what you're doing there and you know current things, but as you might be aware, I, I like to dive into the past um, to help better understand you know, where you're coming from. So um, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in rural Nebraska. Uh, it, it was definitely really formative. And um, I think that comes through in some of my uh, images that are being produced in my work right now. I grew up um, in a few different towns in Nebraska, but all of them uh, were in really white, trashy parts. And I am really um, thankful for that. <laughs> <laughs> Just by that description, I'm I'm curious then how you know, art, you know, was involved in, in early life. And I don't mean to make any uh, judgments, but maybe football is more of the the pastime in Nebraska as opposed to, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint or whatever. Definitely. Feel free to make some judgments. <laughs> I'm all about deconstructing stereotypes in my work and sort of Midwestern sensibilities. <laughs> but uh, I will say uh, you're absolutely right. Art was not a pastime 
at all. The most uh, exposure I had to art was like billboards that you would drive past some very Edrushay moments, but more uh, more billboards that read like Jesus loves you or choose life, your mother did, and things with that sensibility. But the main access to art I had growing up was through the internet, actually, which is very interesting. Even uh, having a family computer room growing up, like we, we were pretty poor, like, but we were able to afford a computer. And I'm very interested in that specific moment and then other small moments about how, how someone can be an artist but not even have access to a physical, cultural art space. Well, that's interesting, too, because it kind of ties into maybe some of the ideas that you're working with currently. So what were you interested then in when, when you were young um, to kind of like bridge that time gap until you're, you know, exploring art on the Internet? I was interested in art. I would always be like the little weirdo drawing monsters in the back of the classroom like a lot of us start out with. But I definitely was into like the nerdier things that were more on the art side. I definitely was into animation and um and cart- Saturday morning cartoons were a big influence, which is interesting uh, because a whole generation of artists are now being raised on that sort of that being their first <laughs> exposure to like art and drawing. Mm-hmm. So to kind of grow up in an art desert, if you will, was that something then that you had kind of like then aspired to be like, oh, I could do animation? Or did you have like some sort of practical idea of what you wanted to do when you were kind of figuring that out or... Totally. I was, I don't know, since you're a teacher and you're uh, teaching the arts, I wonder if your experience is the same as mine with this, but I definitely was um, a kid who wanted to be like, oh, I want to do like manga when I grow up. I want to be a concept artist, which is like, even in the classes I'm in now, uh, the undergraduates are always like, yeah, I want to do concept art. Or you always see them drawing like anime or being influenced by things on the internet more than uh, historical art canon. And I see that a lot now, and I definitely was a part of that. So now I'm sort of dissecting that and work now, but I'm still very much a fan of those things. Well, it's interesting too, because then you think about it relative to like culture in a, in a different way. I don't know, we're dialoguing about things that might be like you're kind of describing just a little bit different, whereas like I'm used to like, but for me, it was like comic book stuff, you know what I mean? So like animation was like, I don't know. I feel really bad. Like I, I joke to my students, like, you know, especially with all these Marvel movies out now, like masters of the universe seemed amazing growing up, but it's terrible by today's standards, you know, but that was like the best superhero film we could have. So like to kind of, you know, look at where we're at now, it's like, this is incredible. So I'm curious then. So like, if we're talking about like a timeline, you know, you're, you're growing up, you know, you're studying in school and like you're in high school, like, are you doing art and then thinking like, Hey, I want to be an animator. Yeah, totally. I was, I remember my fondest memories of high school being like the only student in the art class in the back of the room drawing weird um, things, but also trying to be like formally trained by my art teacher who was winter ringling. And I was remember my first introduction to painting was oil painting with a mirror. Like I didn't even get images right away. She sat me down. I was like, here's a mirror. Here's a canvas. Here's oil paint. You're going to paint from real life and do the hardest thing first. And I, and I was into that at first because I, I didn't know what it meant to be an artist. So I did what I was told. Mm-hmm. As you're kind of trying to figure out then what your path is, you, you know, apply to college at, you know, like thinking I'm going to be an art, some kind of art person or. Yeah, I applied to college. I made the decision early on. I was like, all right, I have to go to college 
because someone told me to. So I guess I'm going to do what I love. And so I went from there uh, and was totally disenchanted uh, with the arts education, uh, as I still am for different reasons. But I think I'm still in love with being an artist or or some sort of uh, maker, as it were. But then that decision then to study art, was that something that was supported? Because like I, like you described in the very beginning, like white trash Nebraska, um, is that something that people just thought you were an alien when you're like, yeah, I'm going to do art? It's so interesting. And I'm exploring that sensibility right now in the work. Everyone loved that I did art. I, it was, my family especially. We were operating with a sensibility that was like, oh, if he if he's making art, he must he must be some sort of romantic figure. It's so interesting. Everyone would always joke if I was doing a doodle like, oh, better sign that for when you get famous someday. <laughs> sort of invoking this this like very romantic sensibility that was sort of interesting to be supported. <laughs> it's weird to think about how like, you know, society might look at art as being such an impractical thing until you become that that star, you know what I mean? And then everybody's like, Oh, you're the best, you know? So, absolutely. so where did you go to school? And, and you kind of described a little bit about your disenchantment. Was that because you were beyond uh, looking at, uh, you know, vases of flowers to draw and stuff like that in front of you? Definitely. I was kind of that classic kind of boring story at this point of the country kid moves to the city and is enchanted with the lights and the hustle and bustle. Um, so I, I originally Starting from smallest to largest, I lived in a town of 200 people, Pleasantdale, and then worked my way up through high school and then uh, got into the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I was going to study drawing and painting for a BFA. And then I moved and transferred to the University of Nebraska-Omaha, where they had a seemingly more open-minded arts uh, and technology program, where I then graduated with a BA. And so what were you kind of most interested in there? Because obviously you have a, a lot of, uh, you know, digital abilities. Was it mostly kind of like studying or kind of working with like digital arts over maybe more traditional arts? I'm, I'm assuming that you kind of went through the, you know, the same kind of foundation courses that are out there. Definitely. And I'm interested in sort of the vernacular people talk about art with too. And especially at a uh, university level, I, I found that like I didn't quite fit in anywhere you always like ask undergraduates like, Hey, what do you like studying? And they'll be like, Oh, I do drawing and painting. I do sculpture. I do printmaking. I do this very concise thing. And I, I would always, I wouldn't really know what to answer. Mm-hmm. Art and technology seemed like the best fit. Uh, so I transferred there and then found I was even more disenchanted because I was closer to what I was interested in, but wasn't, uh, it still wasn't there but I had to move on with life as we all have to. <laughs> well, and I'm assuming then, you know, there was some art that you got exposed to um, in Omaha in terms of like to kind of pull back the curtain to kind of see like, Oh, it doesn't have to be like this. It can be, you know, this other thing that sounds very specific, right? Oh yeah. I totally got what you're saying though. <laughs> uh, the Bemis center for contemporary arts in Omaha, Nebraska is actually like this, a really well-known artist residency program that I was living in the same state as and didn't even know about because no one, I, no one told me. But that sounds silly. Google now that you can just find out. But I still wasn't operating with a sensibility that allowed me to like access that knowledge on my own. But at the Bemis Center, Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts, I met um, 
some really wonderful people, mostly contemporary thinkers that were making art that weren't in those categories I mentioned that were very transformative. Well, it's interesting too, because, you know, you think about like my experience, you know, you're like, you're like sitting around a table, you're looking at slides, maybe you go to a museum in Chicago or something like that. But you know, it's, it's a different kind of thing when you can actually, you know, go see a show, attend an artist lecture, ask questions, and it's a lot different. So I would imagine then that you hopefully kind of like, you know, soaked up and, you know, annoyed all these people as much as possible with questions. Oh, absolutely. I was, I was in there. I was in the thick of it. I was entrenched in contemporary art theory at the Bemis Center. And I really, really enjoyed it. I went from having no um, sort of like historical art history knowledge to like full contemporary art theory and found that was my sweet spot because I really honestly don't care about a lot of art history because I don't think it's I don't think it's helpful especially right now with art being able to have a tangible impact on local communities and politics as such sometimes were there any artists in particular that you know like jump out to you that are like this is what art can be yeah, I worked with this artist, artist slash curator slash writer, Sonia Dyer. She, uh, I believe she's in London right now. She was really formative in the way she made work. She dealt with things like Afrofuturism and sort of feminist theories. One of her major projects was forming a, a space crew um, that was all feminine and sort of making fake propaganda and presenting that as her art practice. Uh, and I was very interested in that sort of the pseudoscience performance piece that wasn't a commodity at all, but that was absolutely potentially helpful in changing how people thought about things. So it was really like, you know, something where you could start to see like, you know, like the ideas behind work is, is what's driving, you know, my interest in it as opposed to some, you know, just making purely formal things. Absolutely. How did this impact like what you were doing then in, in terms of what you're making, you know, maybe kind of towards the tail end of, um, you know, your studies in Omaha? And that, that sort of rambling you mentioned, I'm sort of that's sort of what I'm interested in the most, like a response to a thing that is potential for like critical dialogue. And I think I rethought my whole my whole thing about like what art was supposed to be and what I learned and what I learned like art was intended to do and seeing that work and then being exposed to contemporary art on the internet I I sort of made a decision there to like make non non-commodity art and sort of art that was potentially helpful and and finally like tapped into a, an emerging sensibility of the changing role of an artist mm-hmm. well, and so like in terms of your actual work then what was it like Oh, I, I had a uh, I had a panic attack for about two months because I was like, oh no, what should I do? But then I um, I finally hit a sweet spot of of image making, of presenting images online and and being okay with having my art practice be sort of these images that lived in sort of these ambiguous places that weren't necessarily tangible as prints, but they could manifest as things like images on your phone, internet art, or maybe printed on a t-shirt. And sort of being okay with that as an art practice and rolling with that. Well, and you kind of talked about like the significance or the importance of having art be something that does something. So, I mean, like, could you give us, you know, maybe some examples? I don't know, were you doing like installations where you started to do your own performances or... Like, how did those influences that we were just talking about kind of like um, start to kind of shape the way that you were 
kind of doing that? What I'm doing is kind of strange and I, I'm almost unable to articulate it, which is kind of funny right now. But I think I'm really interested in moments, like very, very specific moments and then sort of making images that reflect those moments. So sort of like maybe say one of your older relatives is on Facebook and they they talk to you about an experience they had where they acquired information that was like obviously not true, but they fully believed. And I'm sort of interested in that sort of like acquiring of knowledge via something that is sort of everyday, but also not true. So I'm interested in maybe if you encounter one of the images I make on your phone, it'll it'll present an opportunity to navigate some information presented through that image in a different way. Did you have like a thesis exhibition then in terms of wrapping up your experience there to, to get to where you're at now? It, yeah, it's so funny because after I got to this point in undergrad, people were like, well, I don't, I don't know what the heck we're going to do with this work and how to present it. And I was okay with that. Uh, what I ended up doing was uh, making some fairly terrible prints uh, and just hanging them up uh, on a wall. And at that point, I was only getting a BA, so I didn't even get a lot of space either. And, that's, and that goes back to that sort of disenchantment with art academics that even though I was entrenched in fine arts, I because I didn't get very academic BFA, I was uh, sort of sorted with the people who were, quote unquote, like not making serious art. Mm-hmm. But luckily, I have had a professor, had a teacher. I'm going to call him a professor because he was that important and informative. But his name was Peter Fankhauser. And uh, he had his own exhibition, and I was invited to participate in that. And that that felt like my final thesis and sort of an affirmation of what I was doing. Well, and so what did you wind up doing then afterwards? Did you go, go to start that wonderful professional degree right away, or did you kind of go off and explore? <laughs> after that uh, that final exhibition and after I was done with undergrad, I, I, um, I asked around for advice. I was like, okay, should I should I go get an MFA in a very practical way? Because that's what a lot of us do that are entrenched in art academics. So I, I got opinions from everyone I could, and everyone said, you should take some time off. And then I did not do that at all, and I applied to grad school. <laughs> <laughs> and I got it. <laughs> and so so where where were you at then? And, and um, was that Oregon then? or At that point, I was still in Nebraska um, working really hard on graduate applications. And I decided if I was going to do it, I was going to do it 100%. So I was mostly studying graduate schools and mostly studying the bureaucracy of art graduate schools. And I was sort of doing doing specific things like researching uh, like the Yale MFA page and just seeing like what like formal elements of the work that got in. Uh, and also like the, the sensibility of the students to sort of exploring who who got in, why I thought they got in, the formal elements of their work, and sort of just soaking it all up. Was that something that was like, you know, direct? I mean, was that like literally like you're graduating and you, with your BA and then like a couple months later you're starting graduate school or what? During that time when I was trying to do some, some soul searching to find out what I wanted to do after undergraduate, I found out about a specific person in my history, my family history and personal history that um, that's changed the way I sort of thought about uh, moving forward in the future. And this ties directly into grad school and where I am now. But uh, during that sort of really important time of uh, finishing my undergrad and sort of like figuring out what the heck I was doing with art and life, 
uh, in the sort of really grandiose terms, I found out about my uh, great uncle, who I didn't really know existed because my family uh, either didn't want to tell me or didn't know enough about this person. And it, this ties in directly with the work I started creating as far as themes of access to information. And I'd love to tell tell that story. So this person, his name was Daryl, but he had changed his name when he had moved away from the Midwest. And his context is he was a gay person and grew up in the Midwest and was treated terribly by um, the sensibilities around him and his own family. So as soon as he could get out, he got out and stayed out. And he moved to Oregon, where he spent most of his life under under a pseudonym, actually. He sort of changed his first name to his um, his middle name, which was Hank, which is what he went by at that point when he moved away. He became a new person, essentially. Uh, and I'm, not only am I interested in that decision he made to move away from the people who um, were supposed to sort of love him and care for him, but also just to be a new person because because he could. That that almost was an art performance in itself. But I'm also interested in the sensibilities that affected him, that made him made make that huge decision to move away for his own well-being. If we kind of think about that relative to then the, the work that you've been making, and you kind of just described that a little bit, but I mean, that, that literally meeting him is something that kind of brought into the work, you know, and, and, and I guess maybe just to kind of make sure that that kind of, you know, makes sense. Could you describe some of the ways that you kind of brought that into the work? Absolutely. Cause it's such a strange personal thing that it's hard to like talk about for other people, but I'm mostly interested in, in that potential for interaction with people. Right. I think one of the main reasons um, he moved away was because no one could talk about it. Like no, talk about him being a gay person and that's and that's so interesting to me um and i think that's why the work i'm making is so personal and i think that's why it's manifesting as sort of this maybe i'll call it propaganda for for dialogue mm -hmm. uh, and i think eyes in the like very contemporary politics uh, in in general um and i think that's where I'm heading with the work. So again, in, in terms of kind of uh, maybe kind of wrapping some of these threads together and, and, and kind of, you know, thinking about where you're at um, again, you've, you've got something for, for us to listen to. I found an artist statement that um, I've, I've found helpful to uh, put into words what I'm thinking about and I'll, maybe I'll read it right now. My 3d work explores communication, documentation, and contact with a recent queer family member who was removed from my family's history. I tend to examine dysphoria, class, ab reaction, and electronic catharsis. And I'm making gallery shows and spaces with open source software on the internet and thinking about queer moments. And I think that uh, that might sum up what I'm doing or might articulate it in a way um, that's useful. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Currently, then, you're kind of working mostly with a digital and social media kind of in tandem to kind of create these, these pieces, if that makes sense. Definitely. I'll be, I'll be specific in like the, how it's manifesting. Um, right now, um, in graduate school, I moved to Oregon to sort of study, uh, this person. And, and the way that's manifesting is through, um, like sort of WordPress aesthetic websites that are sort of have the potential for others to access, but also are, ways to like formally put together uh, an image for my practice of sort of potential information <laughs> access. So right now it, all these images are gathered 
together as sort of the uh, data visualization uh, that viewers can maybe access or maybe not and have uh, the potential to sort of explore. So in terms of like social media, like Instagram as well, I'm assuming? Definitely. And I'm definitely interested in Instagram as well. That's a, another project too that I'm working on, creating sort of fake gallery images uh, and to tie into this theme of like uh, information access. So to kind of be specific, to kind of jump back to, you know, like what we were just talking about, but like, for example, you know, in some of the, the work that we're, you know, looking at or, or thinking about for this, um, like you have a, a, a piece about, about your uncle kind of talking about documenting, you know, this, this encounter or kind of like meeting. So like, essentially it's, that becomes the piece. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. The, the piece that is, can be interacted with from the, from any viewer is as sort of a series of images, but also a website. Mm -hmm. So it sort of mimics like other ways you would access information. Like if you were just to Google something, but in this case, it would be uh, sort of an image that looks like a Google homepage that sort of has connotations of information access. But in this case, it, it's definitely, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a fake website, but also these are very real images uh, of this encounter of me sort of following around this person at, in their day-to-day life. So like in terms of that documentary kind of style almost, or kind of like exploring this idea, then like there's another image, which I'm assuming is your uncle, where again... It's, it's him and, you know, the caption is with the trees he planted and the image is kind of blurry and kind of distorted, which kind of makes me think about like that narrative element or like the way that people will, you know, share and document all of, you know, all the things that they kind of do in their daily life, you know, whether it's their meal or, you know, places or people that they're seeing. I mean, so is that kind of like building up this narrative or exploring then this idea then to you? Yeah, it's totally interesting. I'm, I'm in that gray area of, complete clinical documentation of, of an event or person, but also in that very fine art, uh, sort of ambiguous um, photography phase of a photograph too. And that was definitely a sentiment of maybe a social media sentiment, right? Like you're documenting an event to share with friends, but also it's this other form of information access that I'm sort of parroting in that moment. But also it's a very sincere moment with um, like this sort of moment of, being with <laughs> being with these trees you planted like 40 years ago and documenting that with someone you don't know very well but should have known very well so since you're kind of like more interested in you know this work kind of taking place in you know like a digital realm you know one that is kind of interactive then you know like i guess how have you kind of explored then like like aesthetics in terms of like you know how are you going to use an image with maybe very minimal text I guess, how are you just putting these together? I mean, is this something where you're very literally going through and almost thinking about them as pieces and then weeding out the ones that you don't like? Do you keep a sketchbook <laughs> of ideas? Do you keep a tape recorder? I don't know. Yeah, totally. I'm very interested in this like new, I'm not, I'm not going to call it like this new form of art practice, but I'm interested in what contemporary art practices can be. I definitely have a sketchbook where I sort of formally put together, you know, the grid systems that definitely manifest out of this um, but i'm also interested in uh, in images i'm reading some eflux journals right now specifically hito styrol's literature on images and how the changing ways we interact with especially blurry or images that result in moments and sort of these changing sensibilities of navigations which is very ambiguous and something i'm thinking about and i think that shows in sort of the unspecificness of 
of the images I'm producing. Well, and again, you say that it makes me think of a, there's a image that, that you'd send. It's essentially like a blurry photo of like, I don't know if it's a butterfly collection or a poster of a butterfly collection. I think formally, I think that looks like a lot of what you might see on social media. I think it's sort of like an easy Instagram friendly image, but also uh, it becomes this really personal image of this butterfly poster on um, in my uncle's home that it becomes this sort of double-sided thing that people can potentially ask me about or maybe read more about or just sort of interact with it on the most superficial level of what they've seen before. In terms of like interaction, are you talking specifically about like people making comments or asking questions in, in terms of that realm? Because that's actually something that's really interesting because, again, like an exhibition taking taking place in a white cube, you know, there's an opening and, and then you don't really have that interaction with the artist anymore, you know? So like, are people then free to like ask questions or make comments or, you know, to add all of those emojis that people like to do? Yeah, definitely. I, I fully feel like I won't have uh, another white cube in person exhibition for a while, but I'm very interested in um, exhibitions online. I don't know if you've seen any of those recently, but that's becoming a huge thing where people pretty much just post images online and then call it an exhibition, right? Which is sort of, it's problematic, but also it's, it's happening. And I think it's completely valid because I think some of the exhibition systems we work with in are totally toxic and inaccessible, uh, especially to like poor people. Like I would have very much benefited from these online exhibitions as a kid because mostly I didn't have any art museums, but I definitely had the internet. So I'm thinking about those things. A student of mine yesterday was talking to me about, you know, with the Banksy auction piece. And then I saw today there was Jerry Saltz, uh, you know, flipping the bird, tagging the um, auction companies, essentially kind of say that it's just like this big kind of hype blow up. Um, so, you know, like when you're talking about like the culture of like traditional space, I mean, there's a lot of politics that go involved in terms of like, again, I mean, I look at Banksy and I'm like, worth a lot of money. That's a club, just like, again, the a handful of museums, you know, show a very limited amount of, you know, the artists that are out there making work in the world. I was thinking about that Banksy event that just happened, and I learned about it through, like, an art magazine. And I'm very interested in the image they put with that, because I don't think they even described formally, like, what the image that was shredded even was. Um, and I'm I'm interested in, like, sort of recreating those images about how we learn about certain art art pieces and sort of, sort of creating fake images, sort of like fake museum catalog images or fake art museum posts or fake images we see that represent the art we're supposed to be learning about. And it has to do with some strange, I think, post-truth things going on right now. I'm very interested in in how we learn about art. And I think making a fake exhibition sort of feels like what is already happening. If a museum has a really good picture of an exhibition, it, it equals more participation in that exhibition. And I'm very interested in things like cultural institutions making things that are um, more Instagram friendly, but also equal like money. It's a better way to articulate that, but I, I think that's a thing happening right now that art is becoming more more for maybe consumer digestion instead of cultural digestion. It's, it's sort of related to like maybe An Andrea Fraser's work where she like 
dissects museum and art making culture. I'm very interested in that because what we're told in art academia is, as what what or how we should present art is definitely definitely not the case. And I think these online exhibitions or even Instagram itself, which could be maybe a large gallery. I'm very interested in the future of art presentation and what art culture produces and how we like perform in, in that culture and how we get to the quote unquote top. Um, because it definitely feels like a competition to me. And I don't think, I don't think that comes naturally. I think that's definitely, definitely a learned thing. To kind of think about that as it relates to some of the work that you have too, you know, there's also like a, a number of works where you've kind of made what looks like a, a makeshift kind of digital kind of like gallery space in terms of your images. So I'm, I'm thinking specifically there's, um, you know, like a number of them that kind of have all these, you know, various collages of different elements. I'm looking at white installation shot, which, you know, has a, a figure, this kind of melted looking hand. Again, if you look closely, you start to kind of see like things that, you know, look like social media posts, but they're like, they look like cloths kind of draped to a wall. I don't know, maybe kind of break down a little bit about what's going on in that image so that kind of people can, you know, maybe get a little bit more understanding in terms of or insight into like your process or, you know, what you're thinking about. I used a 3D program called Blender, um, which is completely open source that you could download it today if you wanted to. And I gathered assets, 3D assets, like 3D models, like that hand was uh, a free-to-use asset from this website called turbosquid.com, which is very humorous. And I I don't necessarily care about that website specifically, but I cared that I could access that asset for free and put it all together in this makeshift, um, maybe like fake architecture um, planning program and then um, rendering an image of all of it together to create sort of this fake installation shot as it may be there's some aesthetic value kind of built into it too because like there's you know like ones like like this where there's you know a number of different you know posts and various objects and things like that by point of comparison there's another piece which has this image of like a, a bed you know kind of turned up on end it kind of almost reminds me of when you were talking earlier about you know where you were raised relating to like you know all these religious uh, billboard kind of signs based on the the text maybe it's a combination of uh, a different sensibility of interaction i'm sort of trying to mimic how we gather information every day uh, and sometimes it's through a video sometimes it's through a facebook post sometimes it's through maybe it's through art news an image on art news and i think uh, i was interested in the image of the bed because i see that a lot in contemporary art and sort of making this very ethereal ambiguous image that was maybe less formal and more more open to interpretation so that kind of like ambiguous reading though is something that you're intending the viewer to kind of start to kind of question the, the narrative or maybe kind of create a discussion about it yeah it's definitely intended less as like a thing that people uh, interact with and more as a potential for people to talk about i'm really interested in uh, viewer navigation instead of creating uh an image that is that is um that is strictly the image itself in that image there there's what looks like a landscape that's kind of chopped and um, draping the bed and so i mean is that a particular for a reason i mean you know that landscape as opposed to a cityscape or i wonder if it's then 
you know, part of Nebraska or like from that maybe kind of area that I would associate with the country. We've got all these like, you know, it looks like weeds kind of like sprouting throughout it. But again, maybe maybe I'm sol- maybe I'm answering my own question by talking. <laughs> and I think that's I, that's what I sort of love about it because it's sort of this stream of thought, all these things thrown together in this image. Um, and I, that's sort of my intention is like uh, sort of it's an interesting thing to put together and puzzle it out. And then formally, some of the elements I am surveying um, museums and galleries right now. What what images they post and what are the like the most prominent things throughout them and sort of taking note of the composition uh, and the color and uh, what sort of what things are they posting what imagery or images are they posting it's sort of like I'm mimicking a lot of that and then sort of throwing it together in this fake screenshot as a survey of what contemporary art galleries are posting online and what is like quote-unquote considered art right now well, and it's interesting too, because then, you know, like if we cut to like another, another piece where the text reads, uh, the worst part is the waiting again, it kind of almost reads to me like some sort of Ikea kind of home interior at first. And then thinking about it in the context, of what we've been discussing again, this would be attached to, you know, maybe a whole bunch of other images via social media. So you're starting to kind of, again, for me to kind of start to build like part of a narrative. So again, in a way it becomes kind of universal in that, you know, like people are going to have, you know, something to kind of react to where they're trying to, again, kind of piece together what's going on. When you say that, it makes me think of an artist who is, uh, I'm really interested in, uh, he's quite a popular artist, but Felix Gonzalez Torres's work. Um, he has that famous uh, piece where he, puts two clocks on a wall and it symbolizes two, two lovers uh, in sync, but eventually because it's a clock and it's a battery operated clock, one of them eventually loses track of time in comparison with the other one and one eventually stops. And that's very symbolic of one on a superficial level, just human interaction, but two, his was specifically uh, about sort of lovers in the AIDS crisis. Um, one of them dying uh, but that could be misconstrued depending on who's viewing it, right? Because not everyone has that same background knowledge and experience with people. So in a way, it becomes it becomes uh, sort of this multi-channel thing for people to navigate in different ways. And I'm very interested in in that people bringing their own thing to the table. Well, and you know, another one that we had talked about too is, um, you know, this is one where there's a, there's like a figure that must be at like a target range. There's a text that reads, uh, destroy it, Susan. And it looks like this weird, like kind of artificial kind of constructed like landscape. And then this other, you know, interaction of this, you know, this figure on the background. Again, I, th- I think it's interesting in terms of also then kind of like pulling in, you know, these different influences, um, again, to kind of like bring back to the, to the viewer to kind of maybe, you know, explore. Definitely. And I think with that image in particular, I was interested in making sort of like a fake exhibition image and then making something uh, that was indicative of very real problems too, because I find that especially being from uh, a small town where sort of the neoliberalism of the art institutions that we all subscribe to, it doesn't, it doesn't really have an effect, honestly. Like, I, I'm I'm here learning about art theory, uh, but there are people sort of being sick and not having money and dying at home. Mm-hmm. Sort of interested in that balance of of art that actually does something, and and specifically into that image, 
uh, I was sort of thinking about, well, what would like, I don't know, an ex- a contemporary exhibition look like that dealt with gun control, maybe, I think at that point. Um, and not to say that I'm only specifically thinking about gun control in that image, but it's it's something that is, is like you almost have to think about now because we're very saturated with it. And as a student, I, I think I'm dealing with things that no one, at least being my age, in this generation uh, has to deal with. Like, I know my parents didn't have to worry about getting shot up at school. Like, and I think that's very interesting in general that people are thinking differently than they have before. Well, and again, in a really very real way, you know, teaching in a university, I mean, that's, that's part of our training now is to, you know, be expected to know what to do in that situation in case it, it arises. So again, it's interesting because, you know, we had already kind of talked about that conceptual kind of quality, but then there's, there's, um, you know, this reality in terms of maybe contributing to a greater discussion, you know, to kind of change, hopefully the culture, I would assume. It's very kind of optimistic work. Actually, when I think about it, I'm very interested in like dystopian theories, finding catharsis and small moments of like introspection and maybe happiness in in dystopian times, which I honestly, I feels very dystopian uh, living right now. And I think, uh, I think I, there are a lot of theories on how we, we, we are living in science fiction and that, uh, that genre uh, is now. And if we are going to talk about the future, we shouldn't call it science fiction, but we should call it speculative fiction because the components of science fiction and dystopian elements that we sort of romanticized uh, for the future are happening right now. <laughs> so, I mean, is that something that's helping to guide, you know, like what you're, you're making then too, in terms of, you know, some of the things that you're setting up is to kind of have feedback from people that are like, you know, really responding to this particular image or that particular image. Yeah. I'm definitely interested in like the response people get. I'm having this thing right now where I, I'm being able to get really critical feedback from people who are sort of my age and are who are critically thinking about it. The perspective at which you interact with it changes depending on like, not, not, not necessarily age, but the sensibility you're coming from. And I think that's really interesting. And I think I, I'm mostly interested in what art historians who are learning to be art historians right now are going to think about uh, in the next 50 years and what, what they think is going on now. <laughs> And how they're going to categorize it. One of the things that I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about too is that you have a a, a video piece as well that you'd kind of sent. So maybe kind of break down that a little bit again, because we also talked, I think, before this began. You know, in terms of like maybe growing up in in more rural areas or you know the country where like hunting culture is, you know, part of things. I would imagine that's something that helped kind of influence this piece. Where again, I don't even know what the name of the the thing is called. So break it down. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I think. Um... This will be a good unifying point, I think. Hopefully, feel free to ask a question about it. But uh, I'm really interested in, I said dystopian performativity, I think, before. I'm interested in how we navigate what we're navigating now. Uh, but I'm also interested in queer performativity, sort of like how how do gay people operate in the world and how, how do they even like know that they're gay in the first place? In this particular video piece, uh, it's generated online. It's completely 3D animation. But it's this um, appropriated animation uh, that anyone can download, but attached to a figure that is um, wearing 
they they call it at least in in Nebraska vernacular, it's a ghillie suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, people use it to go hunting. It's very masculine. I they I think it was invented uh, to be military. Uh, it's pretty much a hunting suit. It's like a camouflage suit that you put on to blend in with your environment, so you can go hunting or hunt something. And in this particular video and in the the 3D program in which I created it, I altered the suit. Um, to be colorful, to stick out from its environment, which in this case, the environment is nothing. It's a white background. And I'm very interested in sort of, I technically I sort of uh, queered this camo suit to make it sort of very rainbowish and sort of like anti what it's supposed to do on the most basic level. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, like we were talking about uh, various times before this, you know, podcast culturally, there's all of these kind of like layers being peeled back you know we're but then we're also kind of like learning that you know there's all this variety out there too so it's interesting to think about that related to you know uh queer culture or like you know people kind of exploring that but essentially kind of making it stand out is is obviously the point then to kind of create that kind of conversation i would assume absolutely i think i think he said the word layers just and that 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 definitely is um what I'm thinking about, like potential avenues of navigation. And I think that is, it's so prevalent in my work uh, and what I'm thinking about, sort of access to information. How do you access information? What ways are you going to access information? Uh, Do you even care about accessing said information? Uh, What labor are you going to put into accessing information for yourself or others? And then those layers you talk about, something can be navigated on a most superficial level, but also it could be 10 layers deep. And I'm very interested in that, that potential for navigation. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I'm, I mean, if, if we consider your timeline, then I would imagine, um, gosh, this is about the time where you're looking forward to like, a you know, fall reviews and, you know, I'm sure hearing all sorts of professors, uh, you know, telling you all the things that you should be doing. So it's interesting to think about how that, you know, like even in terms of that work, um, you know, there's going to be some challenges to it in terms of like, you know, thinking about it, but then also it's going to, you know, manifest in different ways and hopefully adapt to kind of continue to, you know, keep carrying that, that conversation further. Again, it's just really interesting to think where, where it's going to be as, as things kind of continue. It's definitely going to change when, when the things I'm using change, when, like when I get a new phone, the work is going to manifest definitely in in a new phone. When I get a new computer, the work is going to manifest in, a new way on that computer. And I think I'm, I'm really, I'm troubled by that because I'm like, okay, how are other people going to access it? But I think I'm very, I'm very okay with having an art practice where your practice manifests something that is only able to be accessed in this ambiguous way. And I think that's very interesting to think about. I don't know if it's a good thing or bad thing, but I'm, I'm interested in that because that's how I acquire information now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so again, just kind of remind everybody, you know, where, where can, where can they find your work and, you know, interact with it and participate? Well, I think if you tie a scroll to a pigeon's leg and let it loose, uh, it might find its way to me, or you could follow me on Instagram at reckling.ball, all one word. Awesome. Awesome. And again, I, I just really appreciate you taking the time. It's been really interesting talking to you and learning about your work. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I hope it was helpful and I've definitely had a good time. (laughs) Thanks once again to Tannen for joining me. 
head on over to Instagram right now and at at reckling.ball so that way you stay up to date with new work and new projects. Once again, that's at reckling.ball. As I stated earlier at the beginning of this podcast, Studio Break's 2018 Pro Competition is now open. So if you're a professional artist out there, you're making work, please apply. This year's juror Brian Frink will be selecting three artists to appear on Studio Break in a future episode, as well as one artist for a solo exhibition at Raka Gallery up in Mankato, Minnesota. If you'd like to find out more information, please visit studiobreak.com. You'll see right on the left sidebar, there is a professional artist competition page for more information. If you know anybody that should apply to the competition, we hope that you share it and let people know. We really appreciate it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please visit studiobreak.com for more. Again, 199 interviews are up, and you can check them all out on studiobreak.com. Again, each of those posts have images of the artist's work, links to their websites, and, of course, these interviews, which you can listen to right there in the default player, or just smash that iTunes hyperlink, subscribe to the podcast, and that way you're never scrolling through YouTube, watching random videos. You've always got something to listen to in the studio. You can always earn some free karma points by sharing the word about Studio Break and our competitions. You can do that by making sure that you follow Studio Break in a number of formats. Again, please like our Facebook page. You can also find us on Twitter at Studio Break and on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. So please follow us there and say hello. As is the case every episode, I want to thank Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. Go check out his work at SkylarMail.net. I'm also excited to let you know that I'll be showing at Rocka Gallery this October 20th. You can check out An Uncertain Nostalgia, a solo exhibition of my paintings, or you can just head on over to davidlinaway.com to see them online as well. Please feel free to reach out or follow me on Instagram at David Linaway, and of course on Facebook, you can check me out there. And there you have it. You made it all the way through. Thanks once again for listening. We'll talk to you real soon.